0: All right, what's up? Oh yeah uh, Okay, so here's where we're at Nehemiah 9. We are uh, in the second half of this of this book, and like uh, I mentioned this last week that Ezra and Nehemiah are both, they were both one book originally, uh, and then at some point in time we split them into two. but they they have a they carry a similar structure where the first half, of the books focus on rebuilding a physical structure of some kind. So in Ezra, it was the temple, uh, the, the altar, though, the getting that that whole thing back in, in motion again of sacrificial system and, and uh, dealing with the sin issues of the people that way. And then Nehemiah comes in in a second wave or maybe a third wave uh, of, of returned exiles from Babylonia to uh, Jerusalem. And his job is to become the governor of Jerusalem and Judea. And he uh, gets the construction going on the walls around the city. So his job is, so most of Nehemiah focuses on the rebuilding of the walls. But as we get to the second half of each of these books, we see a transition from a physical rebuilding of structures to a spiritual reforming of the people. And in Ezra's case, it it transitions into them remembering to to keep the the sacrificial system. And in Nehemiah, uh, it begins with them uh, reading the word of the law and and seeing where they are not aligned to it in their lives and making course corrections. And so that's where we started last week in, in Nehemiah 8. We saw them, Ezra opens the book of the law and the Levites help explain it to the people and uh, they, they start to realize that they're not, they haven't been keeping the Feast of Booths and some other things, and so they bring that, uh, they bring that back into rotation. What we're talking about today as we turn to chapter 9 uh, is going to take us even further in. If, if a reformation has to be centered around the Word of God, which it does, um, and we see that modeled for us in Nehemiah's day, we also re- we need to recognize what the Word of God does for us. And it helps us specifically to remember. It draws our hearts and minds back to the work that God has done for us. And I think, I was thinking about this, that re- remembrance or the ability to remember is, a, is a, an amazing gift from God. Uh, it's, it's something that we can all uh, understand the importance of, right? As our memories, for good or for bad, have an effect on our lives, right? They shape us. Uh, some some of our memories are not good ones, and that shapes us. Some of our memories are wonderful, and those shape us. And I think when we when we think back on the the things that have happened to us, and the remarkable ability that human beings made in God's image have to remember things, uh, it's a gift, and it's it can also sometimes feel like a curse. Um, but it's it's definitely a gift. Those happy memories from our past still bring joy to us, even as we. Think about them. That as we, it can just come. It can come at an unsurpri- a surprising time. Right? You smell something, and it's like triggers this whole memory. Maybe good or bad. Or right, we, we're in a place, and it brings back, it floods back all these memories. Um, that's true for the the good ones and the painful ones. But it's this um, this remarkable God-given ability to remember, is is something that God uses for our good and for our spiritual growth, and maturity. It's one of the reasons why we, we grieve so much as people, as they age, lose their memories, right? And whether they suffer from a disease like Alzheimer's or whether they're just, our, our, you know, as our, as our bodies age and our minds age, we, we do begin to lose things. And that's always a sad reality in a broken world, right? But while we have the, the ability to remember, we should, and the scriptures call us to that, Over and over again, remembrance is a crucial part of our spiritual growth and life. And so this is where Nehemiah is going to take us. This is where this book is going to take us. It's this call to remember what the Lord has done for his people. Ultimately, the Old Testament remembering that they do is good and it's applicable to us in in its own way as it shows us a, a long line of God's faithfulness for generation after generation, what we are also called as Christians to remember the living word, Jesus Christ, and, and the mercy that he has for sinful people like us. And so what, when we see, the in, particularly in the Old Testament, and I think we see lots of examples of this in the Old Testament, and we see warnings against it in the New Testament, we need to fight against this idea of spiritual amnesia where we forget all that God has done, and we put ourselves only in the moment rather than looking back on God's past faithfulness, because past faithfulness of God, being that he's the same God who never changes, his character is always the same, his past faithfulness points us to future grace and faithfulness. So that's what we're going to see today as we get into this passage, and uh, we're going to walk through, this is a pretty long chapter. It's, it's a couple good two or two and a half pages or so of of Bible text, at least in my uh, version here. But it's an amazing story that we get to read. So let's start in verse one to five. That This will set up the context for us and then, and then we'll get into kind of the heart of it. It says, now on the 24th day of this month, that is the seventh month we're in, which is the month of Passover, the month of the Feast of Booth, a very significant month in the Jewish calendar at this time. So they're on the 24th day of this month and the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherabiah, Bani, and Chenanai. Chinan, and they cried uh, with a loud voice to the Lord, their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hash, Hashbanani, Serabiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethiah said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Okay, so this sets the scene for us. We're seeing the people of Israel uh, gather again together on the 24th month. They've been gathered. In chapter eight, they gathered together to hear the word of the Lord read. As they heard the law read, they began to become completely broken by the fact that they had failed so desperately to keep the law. And it got so bad that that Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites told all the people to stop their crying and go have a party and spend time rejoicing. And so that happened. And now they've come back together and and they're putting themselves once again into a place of repentance and confession and, uh, and, and fasting and humility before the Lord. And again, they read the Bible together. And again, they worship and praise the Lord. And part of this is now gonna be recounted. The things that they were hearing and being told are now basically the rest of this chapter is all of the Levites and what they have to say uh, to remind the people of God's faithfulness. And so as they gather to read the word, what's amazing is that the, the Levites here, as we're gonna work through it just a little bit at a time, uh, the Levites just take their Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, and work through it almost book by book uh, in a way that shows and highlights the faithfulness of God and reminds the people of the acts of God in their past that then point them forward to his faithfulness now. So let's, let's take a dive into this. Look, look at verse six through eight. I'm going to title this God's Faithfulness in Genesis. It says, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heavens of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring, the land of the Canaanites, the Hittite, the Amorite, and the Perizzite and the Jebusite. Oh, and the Girgashite, sorry. Got one more in there. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. Here, we're reading about the events that happened in the book of Genesis, very, very short version of that, right? And it focuses predominantly on the creation of the world, that God made the world, and he's faithful to sustain the world, and that God, out of that world, chose a man named Abram to, to call him specifically out of the land of the Chaldeans and to make him a, a special, set him up as a special nation before the Lord. And we see the faithfulness of God uh, to both the created world and to Abram and his people, Abraham and his people. And, and what the key verse in this is, is that you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. That, that God kept the promise he made to Abraham, the promise to set him up as a great nation with, with, the, num, without, with the number of stars not outnumbering his descendants, and at this point in time, that must have been a really remarkable thing because the people of Israel had really been cut down, dramatically cut down through the, through the exile. Being, being uh, 70 or 100 years before this, being taken into captivity by the Babylonians where the Babylonians come into Jerusalem and just slaughter so many people. And then the ones that are useful, they they haul off as slaves and keep them in captivity for 70 years. Nehemiah and Ezra fall into the time after God uh, releases them out of that exile and gives them their land back. But they are nothing from what they used to be in, in terms of number. And so the reminder that they have that God has kept his promise for his, because of his righteousness, he kept his promise to Abraham. What's the implication that he's going to keep his promises still? His character doesn't change. All that God promises he will fulfill. And we know that he will ultimately fulfill these promises and has fulfilled these promises from our vantage point through Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians. He says, All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And so God has been faithful through, from generation to generation with his faithful promises being kept. Second, look at verse 9 through 21. This is by far the longest section we'll read at one time. This is God's faithfulness in Exodus and then into the wilderness. So the book of Exodus is in the focus here. It says, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land And cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments." And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had, get, had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and they were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return them to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to, go to light for them the way in which they should go. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them, and they and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst." Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. That's an amazing passage because it's, it's all, just recounting the events of Exodus from God delivering them out of their slavery in Egypt all these famous stories, you know, you, even if you've never read the Bible, you've probably seen Prince of Egypt or some some movie like that, right? Or Ten Commandments if you're older than me, uh, and and so you have this story of them passing through this this sea that God spreads for them so they can walk across on dry land. All of these things go on, and and yet what's amazing here is that this is not a a, a, um, a revisionist history. They're not just remembering the good things that the Israelites did. They're actually confronting themselves with the stubbornness of their forefathers, with the sins of their forefathers, with the with the stiff necked. That that phrase is used a bunch in this passage, that they stiffened their neck, which goes back to the book of Exodus itself, which talks about this, and God calls the people of Israel a stiff necked people. The Hebrew origi- that, that phrase that gets translated into English as stiff necked, the that Hebrew idiom is um, is actually, it actually means stubborn cows. And that's what that is. And so when you, when you say that they're stiffening their neck, it's just they're being stubborn like this cow that doesn't want to go where it's supposed to go. And they're refusing. It says, verse 17, they refused to obey. And they were not mindful. They weren't thinking about or remembering the wonders that you performed among them. They stiffened their neck and they appointed a leader to return them to slavery. Just amazing how, much, how quickly the people of Israel forgot all that God had done. They, they taught, I remember just being struck by this passage in, in the book of Exodus where they're, they're in the wilderness and they're frustrated at how God has brought them out here and they're accusing him of bringing them out of slavery just to kill them in the wilderness because they're hungry and they're thirsty and and they remember they they start to think fondly of their slavery it's crazy they go we we it was better when we were slaves at least then we had meat pots to eat and i don't know what it's in a meat pot but it sounds awesome i don't know but listen what whatever's in a meat pot i don't know but it it sounds great anyways but they're just reminiscing about the meat pots and uh all these things that they had in egypt but it's like but you were building the pyramids or something, like, what are you? Do? Like, this is terrible. This was awful for you. God saved you out of it because you cried to him for help. And now they're in the wilderness, they're freed, but they're, they're struggling. And so what does God do? He provides us, this passage reminds us, they, He provides them with manna to eat. And He provides them with water from a rock. They're in a desert. There's no water. So God miraculously brings water for them from, from a rock there were probably upwards of a million people in the congregation of Israel that left Egypt. And he brought enough water and food for a million plus people to eat and drink and be satisfied in this. What a faithful God. And that's where this passage goes, right? Even when they made a, uh, for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God. This is, that's a ludicrous thing. And it actually, it actually goes, uh, back to, it's really interesting, if being a stiff-necked people is being a stubborn cow, and then they make a cow to worship, it's kind of poetic almost in a sick way. Um, and here they are, they're, they're making this cow to worship and saying that that's the God that made that brought them out of Egypt. It's committed this great blasphemy, it says here. But here it is, it says, in your great mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. Why were they not forsaken in the wilderness? It wasn't because they were good, It wasn't because they obeyed right. It wasn't because they followed the rules. In fact, the exact opposite. They broke every rule. They did everything wrong. They were completely difficult people. And yet it was purely the mercy of God that loved them and showed them kindness and continued to care for them through those 40 years. God's faithfulness in loving kindness shows shows up on display here. This is the point, that though they're this stiff-necked, stubborn cow people, he keeps them in his love and provision, even in the midst of their rebellion. And, And if that's true for them, how much more so for us? We have a God who will love us faithfully to the end. Let's keep going. Verse 22 to 26. Here it is uh, God's faithfulness in the book of Joshua. It says, And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So here, uh, oh, I'm sorry, got to keep going. verse 26. So the descendants went into and possessed the land and you subdued them before the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Now here here we're seeing the faithfulness of God through the conquest, uh, through through the time where Joshua takes the mantle of leadership from Moses after Moses' death and he carries them through into the land of Canaan that he had promised And he he gives them this amazing, abundant, beautiful land that that they did not earn, they did not deserve, they didn't cultivate it, they were able to just have it. They had vineyards already planted, fruit trees in abundance, houses with all good things, and, and they just were able to walk in. And God gave it to them because he had promised it to them because of his great goodness. His goodness did this for them. Let's keep reading verse 26 through 28. This is God's faithfulness in the judges in the time of the kings. It says, nevertheless, so even though God had given them all of this, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you and abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so That they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercy. This is recording, particularly, the book of Judges. Uh, the book of Judges is, a, is an amazing story that they, they get settled in the land, but then they forget the Lord. They were disobedient and rebelled. They cast his law behind their backs. They started to kill the prophets. Why? Because they're saying things that they didn't like and they committed great blasphemies. And what you have in the book of Judges is this constant cycle of the people being delivered into the hands of their enemies, then crying out for help. God then giving them a savior or a judge to come and lead a military raid and defeat their, their enemies and give them freedom. And then... Once again, they plunge back into rebellion and then another judge shows up and then another rebellion and then another judge. On and on it goes in this downward cycle where every judge that is brought in to, to save the people gets worse than the one before them. And and it's just an amazing thing. And the, the whole point of the book of Judges is that the people did what was right in their own eyes. They just did whatever they wanted and ultimately God would discipline them and bring them back for a season. But it was this, this downward spiral. It was a bad time. And yet God continued to be faithful to them, to hear them and to respond to them. Let's, let's look at verse 29 uh, through thir- and 30 here. Here's the next one. This is the, God's faithfulness to the prophets. And it says, And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandment, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the land." Let's read verse 31. It says, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. He, here's the, the period of time that's kind of being focused on very quick kind of blast-through of the time of the prophets, like Isaiah, Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel, who were there to warn the people that if they continue in their way, they're going to lose their land. They're going to be taken into exile. And sure enough, that's what happened. They stiffened their necks once again. They refused to listen. And yet it is God who, even though sending them into exile, sending them into Babylon, God did that. God put them into Babylon. But, but he did that as a way to, to actually show his great mercies. And he cared for them for those 70 years of exile. And his mercy was there even in the midst of terrible things. And so here you have just this reminder. Now this is basically getting up to the present day and that's where we go in verse 32 through 38. The rest of this chapter turns to to the now of it, to where are they now as a people? And it says, now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all our people, and all your people, excuse me, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous, and all of this has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them in the large and rich land that you have set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves to this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They ruled over our bodies, and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on this, on the sealed document, and are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. We're gonna stop there, and we're gonna read uh, the names that are on that seal, and thankfully, Chris gets to read all those names, so uh, I don't have to. But um, here's where we're at. The Levites are remembering the faithfulness of God, in their past, and now they're pivoting to their present day, and they're acknowledging that they are still in a hard place. They don't—they're—they're they're, they're back in their land, but they're not completely free. They don't have uh, absolute sovereignty over their land. They're still subjects of a king—a king in in uh, Assyria or, or or Persia, I guess you you could say. And so here they are—they're uh, still paying taxes to this king. They're not free people completely. They're—they're they're still under a yoke, but. Nonetheless, God is faithful to them and he loves them and he's caring for them and, he's, and this is a whole opportunity for the people of Israel to be reformed, to be reminded again of where they've come from and that informs where they're going. Now that's the passage in front of us, but we, we need to take this as believers in Jesus and we need to go further because we, un, unlike them, have many more years, thousands more years of God's faithfulness that we can reflect on. We have it at the pinnacle of Jesus Christ. So as important as it is to remember all that we've seen and are remembering for our Christian maturity, I want to remind you today that our our greatest news and our greatest hope does not lie in our ability to remember all these things, it doesn't lie in our ability to be sinless, but it, our hope lies in the ability of our Savior who was sinless and who applies his merits of righteousness to us as we trust in Jesus. Uh, I'm, one of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis wrote these seven children's stories. And uh, my, my favorite one is the one I'm reading now with my kids. It's called The Silver Chair. It's one of the lesser appreciated ones, but I, I think it's just an amazing story. And so I'll try not to spoil it for my son here who's in the, in the front, but um, we're, uh, I think he's read it already. So, um, but The Silver Chair is an amazing story. It's a story of uh, Aslan, this, this lion who figures Jesus Christ in the, in the story. He sends these two children into Narnia, children named Jill and Eustace, And they were sent on a mission to rescue a a, a prince who had been kidnapped and held hostage for many years. In order to do that, Aslan gives Jill uh, a series of signs that she's told to remember. He said, here's how you're going to know where the prince is. Here's the signs. Look for these signs. Remember these signs. He tells her when she goes to bed at night to repeat the signs in her head. When she wakes up to repeat the signs, to keep them in front of her, to keep paying attention to them. And um, she doesn't. She doesn't do it. She forgets. Slowly but surely through the story, they're forgetting more and more. Of the signs. They get distracted by all the other things that are happening to them. But the amazing part of the story is that, that they still get to where they need to be because it's not really on them to remember perfectly. It, it's, it's actually a, a testament. This whole book is kind of a way of C.S. Lewis talking about providence and the way that God works in our lives, even in the midst of our forgetfulness. And so here we have this amazing little story. If you've never read The Silver Chair, you should. It's a, it's a great, great little book. But I, but I think it points us to this reality that what we should remember, we're called to remember, but when we don't do so, it doesn't mean Jesus is not still at work for our good and that he always gets us to where he wants us to be. And I think that that is the message of Nehemiah 9, that it's this mixed bag of, of God's faithfulness And our faithlessness. And the New Testament also hits on these same themes. We're called to remember certain things. 1 Corinthians 15 1 and 2, Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I was, that was preached to you unless you believed in vain. The gospel of Jesus Christ is told to be reminded again and again. Elsewhere, Paul writes the same idea in a different way. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, 8-13, to Paul writes this. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, he will, we will reign with him. Him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Did you hear that? If we are faithless, what would we expect to come after that? He will be faithless to us, right? That's not what it says. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That is an incredible summary of, of Nehemiah chapter 9. That's, that's really the whole thing, that this, this whole passage that we just read through is just a, a re- recollecting, reminding of our, ourselves of the reality that though we are faithless so often, most of the time, God's faithfulness doesn't end because he cannot deny himself. He is the God who promises things and keeps them through Jesus God does not change. He is who he has always been and he will always be. So today as we begin a new week, we need the reminder again that Jesus Christ, crucified for our sins and risen from the dead, is our only hope in this life. Next Sunday is Easter and so we get to celebrate the resurrection in a a, a special way, a profound way, a a focused way but we get to do that every week as we come to church. We remember the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ each week. And, and I think it's just a, a, a beautiful thing that we get to do. But I want to hone in on this because I think for, for so many of us, it's we're going to feel the guilt and the weight of this of, man, I just don't remember Jesus' faithfulness like I should. I think the, the key here is this, that the faithfulness of God is there for when we forget. It is not our hope that we will always remember what Jesus does for us in every given moment. Our hope is that Jesus Christ will always remember us. This is what he said to the, to the, the man on the cross next to him who said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. We we have the same Jesus who remembers us, who will carry us into glory and bring us with him into paradise. We find our hope in that Jesus remembers me and you. Our hope is not in the fact that we can somehow muster the strength to remember him at all times, we should do our best to do so, of course. The Bible calls us to it many times. It calls us to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. These are things that we're called upon to do. But, but when we fail to do those things, we have a Savior who will not forget us. But there is something that Jesus will forget. And it's the best news of all. He will forget every sin you have ever committed. Hebrews 8 verse 12 says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. What good news. So of all the things that we uh, want Jesus to forget, the top of that list should be all of our sins. And he does. He will never forget you He will never forget me, but he absolutely forgets all of our sins. Why? Because he took those sins upon himself and he paid for them. And he died on that cross so that all of our sins would be wiped away and never remembered. The Bible affirms this over and over again, that he will cast our sins into the depths of the sea, never to be retrieved again. That is what we get to celebrate each Sunday as we gather. We remember the Lord Jesus crucified for our sins, risen for our salvation. And we do this as we eat and drink in remembrance, in remembrance of him. We're going to get the opportunity to do that in just a moment. We will sing some songs together in remembrance of him. We'll We'll sing together in praise of his name, but we also as believers get to go to the table and eat a piece of bread and drink a cup. And by doing that simple act that Jesus calls us to do as his followers, we are reminding ourselves of him, putting ourselves back in a frame of mind to go, Jesus took my sins, every one of them, so that he would be merciful towards me in my iniquity and remember my sins no more. We remember a savior who does not remember our sins. That's what we get to do. And we'll invite you to do that in just a moment as we worship and celebrate as we conclude our service. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us now and from generation to generation. We thank you that you have given us your word to remind us of your your actions, your deeds, your grace we thank you that you have given us your spirit to remind us of the things that we are so quick to forget we thank you for the church and the gift that it is that we get to come together and worship with with one another and put ourselves in a position where we can remember who you are each week we pray god that you would work in this in this time and in our hearts bring us to yourself lord we pray and that we and we ask that you would give us Um, all that we need to respond to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.